podcast. I'm your host, James Annika. We are discussing the latest loss for the Korean Blue Jays men's basketball team. They fall to Xavier 77-69 to in Cincinnati. Uh, as you can probably tell by the sound of my voice, I <laughs> it took a lot for me to do this after a loss. I, I hate doing this after a loss. I only want to do these locker room sessions after we win, but you know what? Sometimes, you know, these conversations need to be had. Um, and we are here to have it today, certainly. I'm going to give a little bit more time for people to join in. I see a couple of you guys are coming into the room uh, as we speak. So I'm just going to allow a little bit more time for more people to join. And afterwards, we'll get started on the questions. If you guys want a chance to speak, you could just press that uh, request to speak button at the bottom of your phone or tablet or whatever device that you're using to listen to this. And yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about some of the reasons that we saw as to why the boys really, really struggled today. Um, I'm going to tweet out this live link to make sure that people know that we are on live. And once that is done, uh, we are going to start this conversation. So just bear with me for a minute there, you guys. Uh, if you guys already have questions that you'd like to ask, stuff that you think I should touch on, uh, you can go ahead and type those in. If not, you can request to speak. We can certainly do it that way. Have a conversation about what we saw, what we liked, what we didn't like, things that we think that the boys can improve on that's going to help them down the stretch. As well as, you know, we could even talk about the Xavier team who who looked really good today. I thought posted a really tough matchup. Uh, they were physical, they were strong, they have skilled players at in different positions that really hurt the Jays. Um, and we can get into all of that. So once again, I'm just allowing a few more um, a few more minutes or I guess a few more seconds for more people to join and then we can get this conversation going. While I have your attention though, I would direct you to like and subscribe to the Field of 68 Media Network. Um, obviously, you know, I I think we just completed our 13th podcast, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. Our 12th uh, guest was Justin Patton. Uh, we just recorded one with Jeffrey Grossell, Big Jeffrey out here in Europe, uh, continuing his pro basketball career, a fifth-year pro now, uh, playing out in Poland. Uh, we caught up with him yesterday, so you guys should be on the lookout for that podcast in the next few days. Uh, all of our audio goes on to Spotify and um, Apple Podcast, And the videos are on our YouTube uh, channel, the Field of 68 Media Network. As well as, you know, every once in a while, we'll, we'll post clips on Twitter. I love to retweet those. I love the feedback that I've been getting from you guys uh, as far as, you know, the podcast is going. So it's been very enjoyable for me to, you know, listen to or, or get to catch up with some of the boys that I've played with. Uh, talk to some of the guys I've become a big fan of over time. And, you know, it's, it's been a really fun, a really neat, enjoyable experience for me to, to keep those conversations going, to keep those relationships going, and just to really catch up with the boys and to remind people, you know, the, the players that they were, what they did for the program, where they are at now in their lives, um, 
you know, what they've been up to in the last few years since either graduating or, you know, moving on from the program. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been awesome. It's been fun. Um, and, you know, I, I hope to, that we're able to continue it. So, like I said, we, we've reached our 13th episode. We have big Jeffrey Grossell on. Before him, we had Justin Patton on. And, you know, we had a couple of current Jays, Michael Zagorowski and Damian Jefferson stepped into the J with me uh, then too. So, yeah, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun time. But you know what? Enough of the chitter chatter. Let's get right into it. So, as I said at the top of the broadcast, the boys falls to the boys fall to uh, Xavier University. I almost said Cincinnati. They fall to Xavier University in Cincinnati on the road. As we always say, you know, road games are extremely difficult in the Big East. There's no gimme games on the road, uh, especially a team that poses this tough matchup for the Creighton Blue Jays. Um, you could tell uh, early on, especially in the first half, that, you know, Xavier had a great game plan. Uh, they closed out really hard, forced the boys to drive, and especially in the first half, um, some of the better options that I saw the Jays go to was, you know, Damian Jefferson putting his head down, getting to the rim hard, Marcus Zagorowski putting his head down, getting to the rim hard. Um, you know, to create for himself and for others. He ends up with a double-double tonight. I believe it was his first of his career, so congratulations to Zagorowski on that. Unfortunately, it came in a loss, as, you know, we all saw. Um, but, yeah, this uh, Xavier team really posed a really tough matchup for the boys. Um, the first time that we played them, again, a pretty low-scoring game by Crane J standards. <laughs> we won 66-61 to 61 at home. And then now today, uh, we lose to them 77-69. to 69. Again, by J standards, um, that's a pretty low-scoring game. You know, the boys like to get up into the 80-85 point range. Uh, they can fill it up in a hurry. I kept waiting for a flurry to come. And it just simply never came. Um, they rallied late, and then ensuing two possessions, they turned the ball over. So, just a difficult way to end the game down the stretch, where it felt like they were starting to gain a little, gain a little bit of momentum, and just let it slip out of their hands as the game waned on. And then at the end of the game, it was just execution on out of bounds sets from Xavier, which led them to a, a uncontested fast break dunk on the other end. And you know that's all she wrote from that standpoint on. We have our first speaker request. Tom, I'm going to allow you to come on here and and uh, ask away. Tom McAllister, how are you doing, brother? I'm good. How are you? So I, I'm, I'm doing one, I, I mean, the one question I got is, mm-hmm. you know, do you really think that for Creighton to make a big-time run, either in the Big East or NCAA tournament, they need someone else to step up from the bench because they only got one person to score off the bench and, uh, call Brian on that was just nine points. Do you, do you think they need mm-hmm. a little more depth going forward? That's a very good question because honestly, the bench play for this year has been so up and down. Uh, we saw a game earlier on against St. John's. Marcus Zagorowski was out, you know, dealing with a hamstring injury. Um, and the bench lit it up. There was contribution from everybody. And, you know, it, it really showed Crane's depth at that time, which Myself and a lot of the fans that I was talking to were like, whoa, like if we can have that kind of production, like, I mean, it, it bodes well for, you know, the NCAA tournament 
type of setting where you know any game could knock you out and, and you know it takes a few possessions to either advance or to be knocked out of that tournament so earlier on in the year i was my standpoint was that our depth and our bench looked really good but uh we saw you know for the last handful or so of games that you know it's it's a few points here and there from the bench contributors and uh i do agree that you know they must improve on that end um if they want to be one of those deep teams that can make a, a sweet 16 elite eight type of run, because, you know, on, on any given day, especially in the NCAA tournament, if shots don't fall for the starting five, you're going to need someone that's going to really have to step up, um, you know, make plays for themselves and for others. Uh, at, earlier in the year, I thought a guy like Antoine Jones could provide that kind of depth. I thought Cockburner was doing a really good job, obviously as a freshman center to getting to his spots, you know, getting putbacks, getting lobs from, from the guards who are attacking going downhill. And um, I thought Sharif Mitchell gave him a really bo- big boost, obviously defensively, as he's known to do. But uh, offensively, just being a calm uh, presence, getting guys in the right spots, not really turning the ball over earlier on. But, you know, some of those things need to come back. The Jays have struggled in that department in the last few games. And I would agree with you if that's what your premise is, Tom, that, yeah, they, they do need a little bit more depth and they certainly need to to work on that aspect. So, so yeah, I hope that answers your question. I appreciate you for jumping on. Yeah. Uh, do you mind if I ask another question? Absolutely. Go ahead. You know, I'm looking at the free throw percentage, which is, you know, for Creighton today was 50%. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I do believe I don't have the stats in front of me that Creighton does struggle from the free throw line. Uh, is that something that could, you know, I guess I'm trying to think stunt uh, a potential run in the NCAA tournament where they can't put a team away from the free throw line where someone can come back and take them out. I'm, I'm certainly hoping that it wouldn't <laughs> for sure. Uh, we had Damian Jefferson on early in the Welcome to the J podcast. I think he might have been the third or fourth episode, if I'm not mistaken. And he talked about, you know, everything in his game improved this year. But for whatever reason, he was struggling at that point in time. I believe he was shooting like in the low 60s uh, percentage wise from the free throw line. And he said, he, you know, it's something that he works on every day. Uh, and he makes them in practices, you know, he makes some after practices when he spends extra, extra time shooting with the coaches. He just didn't understand why that didn't necessarily translate to in-game. So, like, it, it sort of looks like, you know, that's kind of what's been going around with, with this team is that they're all good shooters in their own right. Um, obviously, you expect a guy like Denzel Mahoney uh, you know, to a really good scorer. He could shoot at, he could score at all three levels, I should say. He could attack the rim. He could hit the mid range really well. He could catch and shoot threes really well. He shot the three off the dribble a lot better this year than I've seen him, obviously, uh, in his play last year. But when you look at his free throw percentage, I believe they're in the mid 70s. You would expect someone like Denzel to shoot better, right? So it, it certainly has looked like a little bit of an Achilles heel for this team. Um, but I would say, I don't know. I, I just, I trust shooters and Crane's got some great shooters on that roster. I trust that when the moment is big, they would be able to make it. Uh, I'm trying to think about situations where I guess the Kansas game earlier this year, when Zagorowski had a chance to tie it, he made the two out of three when he got fouled on the three point line 
uh, to tie that game. You know, that was a big free throw that cost him a game. You would hope that, you know, when it comes to that situation, again, he, like they, they've learned from those situations and are able to concentrate, knock it down, and not let the moment be too big for them. So, yeah, free throw shooting has certainly hurt the Jays. It hurt them today. Um, but like I said, I trust them. I know those kids. I know that they work hard on their craft. I trust that when the moment is going to be bright, that they'll be able to knock it down. Gotcha. Now, you know, something else I want to ask is, when you look at the potential seedings for the Big East tournament, you know, a lot can change. Um, this isn't a guaranteed, but it looks like Creighton uh, is on a path to potentially clash with UConn uh, in the semifinals on the Friday night for um, the Big East tournament. Now, a lot needs to happen before that, but how do you think Creighton will match up again uh, with UConn as they played an OT thriller the first time where both night dropped 40? Yeah, that OT thriller was – it was a Sunday night game for me out here in Lithuania. So it was an early afternoon game for you guys back uh, in the Eastern time zone. Um, what a thriller that was. I was just sitting back and watching. Book Knight gave him the works that night. He looked incredible. Uh, and I believe at that point in time, UConn was coming off of their COVID protocol where they hadn't played too many games. Am I right in saying that? Yes, I do believe. I believe yeah, it was the so, biggest opener for him. All right, so it was a it was a thriller. Obviously, uh, you had Damian Jefferson tie it up at the very end in order to force it to overtime, and the boys took care of business during that extra frame. And then obviously they missed Book Night when the Jays played them at home, and they looked a lot better. But UConn is one of those scary teams. They have an uh, a legitimate star in Book Night, uh, mm-hmm. and a group of guys who really know their role and who play really really hard defensively. Those are the type of teams that have success in the Big East tournament and in the NCAA tournament as well. Obviously, we know UConn's history about, you know, all they need is one star and a bunch of really good complementary pieces and they could take it all the way, you know, shades of, you know, the Campbell Walker teams and the Mm -hmm. Shabazz Napier teams. So uh, obviously UConn poses a threat to anybody in the Big East, not just the Jays, um, but, you know, as far as a head-to-head matchup between the two, I've always said that it's very difficult to beat a team three times in a row uh, in, in a in a season. So um not saying that the boys should shy away from that matchup. I certainly think that they would be able to win that matchup. But it would be a very difficult game, especially if you know anything about, you know, college basketball facing guys like that three times. Like you have all the scouting reports, all the videos that you need to see. And, you know, that makes it a, a really tough chess game for the coaches involved. So, so yeah. yeah, I I would say that that would be a really tough matchup if that ends up being what it is for the Big East tournament. And also, too, they, they you know, Creighton has another big matchup as they're going um, on the road to, against Villanova and a potentially motivated Villanova team that could be of out course. for blood. How, how do you think, That's too, tough. especially – now, let me ask you this question, though. Do you think Creighton could benefit from this because the loss to Xavier, they kind of reset, like, all right, we need to work on things? Or do you think they're like, wait, we just struggled at Xavier, Villanova's going to come, we're going to struggle again? Like, how, how, how do you think, like, what, you, know, do, you know, do you think the Xavier loss will help or hurt Creighton going into the Nova game? Uh. Uh, from what I know from this coaching staff, which is, you know, quite a bit, having being a former player, obviously, uh, they can find 
the good and the bad from a win or a loss on film. Uh, Coach Mack is meticulous about preparation for upcoming games. He's going to dissect this film uh, thoroughly. Let's just say that the boys were able to pull this one off, right? I'm sure Coach Mack was not happy with some of the defensive mistakes, some of the lapses that they saw defensively. It was just a few too many times where guys were, you know, waltzing down the paint with not a lot of resistance, getting all the way to the rim for an easy layup. So, um, the, in, so in this particular situation, instead of speaking hypothetical, let's talk about what we actually saw. Uh, the boys lost a game that they they could have won. They just didn't put enough plays together uh, to pull out a victory on the road. And like I said at the top of the broadcast, you know, road games are extremely difficult in the Big East. So I'm sure the coaches are going to dissect that game. I'm sure they're going to drill, 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 drill until they get to, you know, the, the point that they feel comfortable, that they've, you know, um, that they've understood their mistakes, that they uh, won't make those type of same mistakes again. And then you just kind of look forward. The beautiful thing about having games, you know, in a relatively short span of time is that you can kind of close the chapter behind you and move on to the next chapter ahead. So, again, in a highly motivated, well-coached Villanova team is waiting for them in Philadelphia on Wednesday. And I'm very much looking forward to that matchup. You know, and staying on the topic of Villanova, I'm going to throw this out out at you too. You know, since the Big East has realigned, since Creighton has joined the Big East, Villanova has been the premier program. You know, and usually it's like Villanova, and you know, one year it's Xavier, uh, another mm-hmm. year it's Marquette. Do you see it becoming where Villanova and Creighton are number one, two in the Big East for years to come, and they get that intense rivalry going? for a year in and year out. That's what it was my very first year, or Crane's very first year, my senior year. When we first entered the Big East, they were number one. We were number two that year. We were the only team to beat them, I believe, that year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then they go on and they lose to Seton Hall in the Big East tournament. And then obviously a couple of years later, they have that incredible run, make it all the way to the finals, have that big time shot uh, to put them over over the top, and then they have uh, another, you know, that DiVincenzo-led team mm-hmm. that, that went back at it again. So Villanova is always going to be up there. Like I said, that program has been stellar in the Big East, obviously in, in what I guess we refer to as the old Big East and in the new Big East as well. So that name is always going to ring true. As long as Jay Wright is there, you can expect that program to be up there. Now what we're looking for, obviously, uh, is a second consistent team to really challenge them year in, year out. And like you mentioned, like it's been a few teams that step up to the plate so far. Um, and then combating to last year where it was a triple share of the Big East regular season championship between, you know, the boys, Seton Hall and Villanova. So uh, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting perspective to have. It's not something that I'm, I'm, I've gave too much thought of, obviously, over the years. Um, but again, this seems to be another year where, you know, the Big East is still pretty wide open. Let's say that the Jays go on the road and they beat Villanova uh, again, and then Villanova has another tough matchup where they lose again. All of a sudden, you're looking at the landscape of things, and I know that the season is coming to an end shortly, or the regular season is coming to an end shortly, but man, like the league is wide open again and anybody can, can come for that number one spot or at least tie for a share of that number one spot. So um, 
Yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting uh, perception, I guess. Um, I do believe, though, that obviously Villanova has been the mainstay, the cream of the crop of the Big East since the new iteration of the league uh, started. Has it already been a, a no seven years ago? Yeah, technically. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, no, I, I agree with that premise for sure. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this: You might have a better hindsight on this. Uh, since you played, uh, especially only just a few years ago, do you see mm-hmm. anyone taking advantage of that extra year of eligibility that the NCAA has granted to all college basketball players? Where, uh, you know, let, let's say certain players on Creighton get an extra year um, to play, or do you see them just being like, no, what? I had a four four year plan. It's time for me to move on. Um. I've I've seen it from other programs. I don't know that I've seen it from this Creighton program. I think that guys are going to finish out their year. The guys who are seniors right now are all going to try and move on because uh, if you look at, let's just say, like a guy like DJ and a guy like Denzel, they tested the waters last year. They wanted to see what kind of interest they would have in pro ball. They've played their heart and soul out this year already. I believe that their mindset after this year, wherever, you know, however far this team goes, is that they're going to want to move on and and see what the future holds for them as professional athletes. So uh, I'm just talking about those two guys because those are the guys who last year had an interest in leaving and wanted to see, you know, what the next level uh, had to offer, you know, what kind of feedback they could get from agents or, you know, guys who are in the NBA and whatnot. However that process goes, I'm not really too familiar with. But they both decided to come back, understanding that this was going to be their last year and they were going to move on. So in my opinion, I, I believe that's what their mindset still is. What's tricky is a guy like Mitch, who perhaps didn't think about it from that perspective. Um, I, I wouldn't be necessarily shocked if he decided to come back. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to put anybody's hopes up that he might come back. Obviously, I, I haven't spoken to him about it. This is just speculation. But uh, I think Mitch really thoroughly enjoys the game of college basketball um and that's me saying that from you know obviously getting to know him over the last couple of years when I go back to Omaha and I train you know I've seen the kids work ethic he's he's constantly thinking about basketball especially about how to make the program better how to make his teammates better how to be a better leader so I could see a guy like him deciding you know what let's give this one more go if the NCAA is going to give me a fifth year of playing why not you know, come back and essentially shatter all the three-point records <laughs> that Korean that has. So, um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see, obviously, come March, April, May, what decisions these guys yeah. choose to make. Yeah, I, I think one person that might be a little more interesting is uh, Damian Jefferson because he transferred in. You know, and I, mm-hmm. I think guy, guys who have been, been at the same school for four years, they're kind of like, you know what, it's probably time for me to move on. But a guy yeah. like Denzel Mahoney, who, you know, transferred in, and so did Damian Jefferson, they might be like, hey, you know what, let me enjoy the limelight. You know what, I want to play my last college game with fans in the stands. Um, so, you know, that could be something that impacts them too. But, you know, right. since, you're, since, since you're also a former college athlete, how do you feel about the NCAA potentially getting rid of the transfer rule where if, a kid, where if an, an athlete transfers, they have to sit out a year? How do you feel feel about that? I honestly thought that that should have been, you know, they should have gotten rid of that rule a while ago, in my opinion, because like 
I never understood punishing a kid a year of not a year of eligibility, but like basically make, making him sit a whole year simply because things didn't work out at his former institution. Because if a coach decides, hey, things aren't working out here, I need to leave and go to a better situation for myself. We never ask coaches who are making, you know, thousands upon thousands, if not millions of dollars to sit out a year because what happened at their former institution they didn't like that situation. They did decide to get a new job elsewhere. So I always thought that, you know, there's a, there's a few NCAA rules that are super hypocritical, in my opinion. I never understood why players had to bear the brunt of a richer year because they decided, look, I thought things were going to go one way. Obviously, it, it went awry at, at my last place. I would like to move on to, to somewhere better for me oh, I get slapped with a year of redshirting because I decided to transfer. Like that, that rule literally never made sense to me. So if they are going to get rid of that rule, I, I don't know. Have they said that that's something that they're looking to do? Have they done it already? Yeah. Or what's the uh, process on that? They, they, there have been reports where the NCAA has been looking at it, um, mm -hmm. but they, they haven't really voted on it. And, and I mean, I kind of, like, like my, my viewpoint is, I'm a little conflicted, even though I've never been a Division One athlete. Um, mm -hmm. I, I feel like players deserve, you know, th they should have the choice, especially you bring up a great point when coaches leave. Um, it's mm -hmm. also my one concern is what's to take away the really elite schools like the Duke, the Kentuckys from going and being like, you know what, I'm going to get the Atlantic 10 player of the year and put them on my team. You know, so, so my but... concern is more for – the people, what we would call the mid-major to, you know, um, low majors, you know, I see them being negatively impacted from this while the other schools are just, you know, uh, reaping the benefits, the more elite schools. So that's kind of the conflict I have. I, you know what, that's, it's an interesting idea. I would say that those super elite schools are always going to go after McDonald's all Americans, you know, top 50, you know, prospects anyways. Uh, and, the transfer portal is undefeated. <laughs> Whether kids have to sit out a year or not, guys who are looking to move on, guys who are simply not satisfied with the place that they're at at the present moment are always going to do so. So I don't necessarily see it the way that you do as far as, you know, like you said, like maybe the A-10 or the Southern Conference Player of the Year might all of a sudden end up on a Duke roster. Hey, if that kid was going to leave, they were going to leave anyways. If they enjoy the school and they're, experience and the environment that they're in they're gonna stay um and that's just kind of the way that i always thought about you know transfers like uh obviously uh, i was a host for many of the visits that happened on campus during my time there like mm -hmm. the guys who were transferring from one school to the other their main thing was simply you know things didn't work out where I was at. I was not enjoying myself. I was promised things that the coaching staff didn't execute. And I, I understood that my time there was limited and I needed to leave. I believe that's still going to be the reasons why most of these kids decide to transfer if they do. I don't think that whether or not they have to sit out a year or if they get to play immediately is going to affect um you know, their decisions to transfer. The The rate of transferring has increased like tremendously, obviously in the last decade. So uh, I, I feel like that was a trend that was going to keep going up anyways. Mm -hmm. 
Now, now, when you're hosting those visits for those transfers, were any of them Maurice Watson or uh, Marcus Foster? No, so that was a little bit after I graduated. Those guys came in. Uh, One of the major transfers that we almost landed was Pierre Jackson, who ended up going to Baylor. Tremendous player, tremendous athlete. um, You know, and we honestly thought we had a legit shot at him. He was a JUCO transfer, so it's a little bit different. Uh, But he, Mm -hmm. he ended up going to Baylor. Uh, had a good end of his career there, has had a pretty good, solid pro career. Um, you know, he's been in and out of the NBA, has played in China, has played in the EuroLeague. So, you know, but he's one of those guys who, you know, were obviously leaving the JUCO uh, portal, going into Division One, And, you know, I was a host on his visit. We thought we had him for sure. We just obviously couldn't, you know, seal the deal with a guy like that. But no, uh, Maurice Watson Jr. was a little bit after me, and then obviously Marcus Foster was as well. Gotcha. And, and I mean, it must have been interesting for you because you, your your coach was Coach McDermott, and you were also playing with his son at the time. Mm-hmm. So, so like, how how was it at the college level? Like, do, do you you know because Doug McDermott, like the offense ran through him. Was was that mm-hmm. did that bring up any issues, or did people kind of understood like, listen, he's the best player on the team? It's okay to run the offense through them, you know. Like, how did how did people respond to that? Uh, like, there was literally. Uh, I think. Let me clear this up for sure, because that's actually a question I've been asked, you know, quite a bit. Okay. Uh, the dynamic of player son, uh, or, or sorry, a coach and son. That dynamic is something that people are always interested in. Mm-hmm. Doug was supposed to redshirt that first year, but heading into two a days. He was so good that it was undeniable. His talent, his you know, his his uh, his scoring ability at the time. He had a, obviously a very slender frame, but he knew how to work his body. He knew how to seal better than some of our bigger guys on on that mm-hmm. year's team. So, and then uh, you tie in the fact that there was some injuries, you know, from one of our main seniors, uh, Casey Harriman. At the time, he he didn't even play that entire year because his shoulders were so messed up. I think he had multiple shoulder surgery that year. He decided to just, you know, call it a career after that. Um, Ethan Rocky had plantar fasciitis. who was slated to be in front of Doug on the death roster, or on the death chart, I should say. And then uh, Wayne Reynolds was a senior. Um, him and Doug had some battles, but Doug got the better of him more often than not. So from you know, off-season workouts, the preseason workouts to two-a-days when the team is, like, really getting formed and we're really trying to see, like, the bigger picture of what the team could look like for that year, Doug was just absolutely killing. So if you were at our pickup games, if you were at our practices, you just saw that you, you just simply couldn't deny this kid. And, you know, that that's basically what it was. We never – I don't think we ever thought of it like, man, he's getting that kind of treatment because he's the coach's son. Like, gotcha. it was like, no, we need to give him the ball because he gives us the best chance to win on a night-in, night-out basis. And that got established pretty early. Now, mind you, obviously, Doug is not perfect. His freshman year, our freshman year, he had his struggles every once in a while. But for the most part, he was putting up double-digit scoring efforts just about every game. So, you know, his talent and his touch around the rim at that time you just is something that you couldn't really teach. And... You know, obviously, as the years uh, gone or went by, he got exponentially better year in year out. So, yeah, we just it was never about like, oh, 
like Coach Mack is feeding Doug the ball because that's his son. Absolutely not. Doug earned yeah. everything. And, you know, you would think that you would hear like either arguments or fights coming from the locker room if that was the case. We had four years of uh, honestly, like just the greatest times on the road, on the in the locker room. I, I, I can't remember. There couldn't have been more than a handful of arguments during those four years, you know. And mostly was because we were playing like trash and we wanted to turn, you know, turn the tide of what the season was looking like. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. I hope that clears it up because people have asked me that often throughout the years. And like Mm -hmm. some people can't believe it when I explain it to them. Like, oh, yeah, not even once, like not even once did anybody, you know, ask about or bring up the fact that Doug was, you know, Coach Mack's son. And that's the reason blah, 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 blah. Like, no, absolutely. Like, that that was not a thing that happened in our locker room. Yeah, because there were claims, uh, Pistol Pete Maravich, who set the NCAA scoring record, uh, his dad mm-hmm. was the coach at LSU, I, I believe. <laughs> and they, they felt, like, a lot of people were like, listen, you know, his dad gave him the green light, and, and kind of that yeah. was one of the issues, too. And I think everyone who's, you know, there's probably been a few people who have played on on a sport where the coach's son, they felt, might have gotten a little bit of favoritism. So people were wondering if that happened mm-hmm. at the highest level, uh, especially at Creighton. But, Noah, it was great talking with you. I actually have my own show on YouTube, Battle for the Big East. Mm-hmm. You're more than welcome to come on one time to talk Creighton, whether the Creighton team now or the Creighton team when you were playing. So, I'll awesome. Hey, I'll, yeah, I'll send me a message in the Twitter uh, DM, whatever that's called, the Twitter messages. So, and yeah. we could certainly link up. I'm I'm always more than happy to talk Big East basketball for sure. Um, nice. Obviously, doing this podcast this year has allowed me to not only watch the boys, but really pay attention to what's going on in the landscape of the league. So, yeah, yeah I'll be glad to jump on. Uh, so shoot me a message. And thank you, Tom. Obviously, uh, this was fun. <laughs> you know, you're welcome to request to speak on this locker room session anytime that you get the chance. Gotcha. All right. Take care. Be good. Bye. All right. Take care. Have a good one. Uh, we had a question not too long ago, or I guess half an hour ago now from, you know, Crane Blue Jays fan. I appreciate you uh, being a little patient while we, before I got to your question, his question was, other than Marcus and DJ, everyone else on the team is not very consistent. They have had their moments, but we can't rely on them every game. I feel like we need more reliable scoring options when uh, some people aren't hitting their shots. I don't know. That's just my opinion. Uh, while I was talking to Tom McAllister just now, we kind of touched that subject about, you know, the others um, being able to step up in key moments, being able to string together games and not just kind of have a blimp on the radar game where they, they do really well and then they're not reliable the next game. So I mentioned earlier about the game against St. John's, which was the most glaring game, in my opinion, about the depth of the team. Everyone played really well. The ball was shared. The bench came out in full force. I think even a guy like Alex O'Connell looked like he was just getting comfortable in, you know, coming from Duke, transferring in uh, as a new member of the roster. And we've seen in the last handful of games or so that it's really been the starting five carrying the guys. Um, but, you know, consistency is is something that the Jays need as far as their bench production and overall depth is concerned. I certainly agree with you, Korean Blue Jay fan, that, um, 
different guys need to step up at different times. You can't always rely on your star players um, to pull through for you. You know, if that, that's one of the things when I think about my playing days uh, that I, I wish, you know, kind of went a little bit differently. Uh, we knew what Doug was going to give us. And our mindset was always, you know, it, it doesn't matter who, but we were always going to have a second guy. And it just didn't work out for us, you know, when the moment called for it the most. And I'm obviously talking about, you know, my senior year, that loss against Baylor in uh, the round of 32. That still stings me to this day. To this day, if I see a Baylor game, I immediately change the channel. I immediately look for a different stream because I just simply, <laughs> I, I have not gotten over that, that senior night loss. So, um, yeah. Uh, the Jays could certainly use uh, another scorer to help facilitate with the offense and everything to, to not only score for themselves, but to help put other guys in good positions. So, uh, yeah, that's one of the main things that we touched on in, in today's locker room session is how good uh, the secondary guys and the others could uh, can be to help the starting five especially in a game like today where, you know, didn't get much going offensively, especially at the rate that these guys can score to finish with 69 points is obviously much below what the coaching staff would like. Um, and if we want that number to increase, different guys are going to have to step up. That has been my time today. I want to thank Tom McAllister for hopping on, having a good, a good conversation with me, not only about the boys, but obviously about kind of the landscape of the Big East. Um, looking forward to catching up with him um, and talk some more Big East basketball. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the Field of Media, uh, the Field of 68 Media Network, I should say, um, for more content such as this. And, you know, hopefully the boys could get their their you know, get everything together the way that they need to. Uh, big game coming up for them at Villanova in Philadelphia on Wednesday. Uh, we will most likely see you after that game. Um, be on the lookout on my Twitter. That's where I announce whether or not we're going to have locker room session post-game. Uh, it's been a pleasure.